Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, July 13th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Russia blocks Syrian aid at the UN. FBI Director Ray is grilled before a House committee. Ukraine's NATO bid falls short. While China warns against NATO expansion in Asia. Iran inks key Africa agreements. Iowa's GOP passes a six-week abortion ban. The U.S. Justice Department changes course in the Trump E. Jean Carroll case. Canada probes Nike and Dynasty Gold over alleged Uyghur labor. Bank of America is fined over junk fees. And Elon Musk launches a new AI company. In our first story, Russia blocks Syrian aid at the U.N. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Middle East Monitor, the UN Press, and France 24. On Tuesday, two separate proposals of a six- and nine-month renewal of a UN humanitarian operation in Turkey to transport aid to over four million people in rebel-controlled northwest Syria failed to gain approval at the UN Security Council. The proposal for a nine-month extension of the operation was vetoed by Russia alone in the 15-state Security Council, with China abstaining from the vote. Only China joined Russia in approving the six-month counterproposal, meaning there was to be no renewal of the program, which officially expired on Monday. That provides for over 80 percent of the needs of those living in rebel-controlled areas of Syria. The aid mechanism was first established in 2014, delivering supplies via a border crossing at Bab al-Hawa. Both resolutions required at least nine votes in favor, dependent on any of the five permanent members of the Security Council, Russia, China, the U.S., the U.K., or France, choosing not to exercise their right to veto the motion. Authorization of the cross-border mechanism is required as Damascus does not agree with the U.N. operation on sovereignty grounds arguing that sending aid into rebel-held areas undermines the state's territorial integrity. Russia's UN delegation stated that the nine-month extension, proposed as a compromise after an initial 12-month resolution was drafted, was not in the interests of the Syrian people and was intended to provoke Russia into using its veto. Russia also stated that the resolution violated Syria's sovereignty while arguing that the border mechanism benefited terrorists in the region. In a joint statement, the U.S., U.K., and France condemned Russia's decision. Russia last vetoed a one-year extension in July 2022. Despite failing to renew the operation in Bab al-Hawa, two additional crossings remain open, agreed to by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad following an earthquake in February that killed tens of thousands of Syrians. Without a further renewal, both aid routes will expire in mid-August. Thank you, Melissa. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we'd like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Melissa just laid out the facts for that story. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with an anti-Russian narrative provided by the New Humanitarian. Despite providing a crucial lifeline to over 4 million people, cross-border aid has consistently faced attempts from Russia to undermine the UN's mechanism. Moscow and the al-Assad regime continue to play with the lives of Syrians in an attempt to gain leverage 
both the Russian and the Syrian governments must stop politicizing international efforts to give aid to the region and cease manipulating a humanitarian crisis for their own benefit. BNN brings us the pro-Russia narrative. Russia's criticism of the UN's controversial cross-border aid mechanism highlights the complexity of the Syrian crisis and merely calls for greater transparency and fairness in a program that benefits the West's political goals while ignoring the needs of over 14 million Syrians who live in government-controlled territory. Russia's demands merely insist that UN efforts respect Syria's sovereignty, comply with international norms, and attempt to provide aid to all Syrians. There's also a cynical narrative attached to this story provided by Al Jazeera. Though the U.S. and other Western countries blame Russia for the lack of aid delivery to northwest Syria, the reality is that Russia's approval is not actually needed to deliver aid independently. Russia and the Syrian regime are the main causes of Syrian suffering. But that doesn't mean that the West is without blame as well. Turkey controls the border between it and the rebel-held areas of northwest Syria, meaning that humanitarian aid could be transferred to the millions in need without Russia's approval. And we frequently have statistics-based nerd narratives on this show from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 1% chance that Russia will be removed from the UN Security Council by 2024. Oh, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> What's the smallest amount we can put on here? Yeah, right. There's a, there's a 0.003 chance. I guess the, Metaculus would have done that. If right. It were. If they could. If they, I don't think they yeah. figured out decimals yet. I haven't <laughs> seen a decimal on. They can only do the percentage of it. Yeah. But could you imagine Russia getting their uh, their their re, we, we respectively decline your membership to the U.N. Security Council, Russia. Thank you. Please turn in your badges and your membership card. Okay. And your parking pass. Very well. Um, we understand. We will try harder next time and learn from our mistakes. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. House Republicans grill FBI Director Ray. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill. NBC, New York Post, Associated Press, Fox News, and CNN. FBI Director Christopher Wray appeared before the House Judiciary Committee at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday as part of a regularly scheduled oversight hearing, which turned into an hours-long grilling of Wray by House Republicans who claim the FBI and intelligence community has been weaponized against conservatives and in favor of Democrats. Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, voiced many of his issues with Ray's FBI, including the agency's lack of interest in the Hunter Biden laptop story before the 2020 election, its collusion with social media companies to suppress conservatives, and its targeting of school boards and parents. Conservative Representative Matt Gates, a Republican from Florida, accused Ray of turning a blind eye to President Biden and his son Hunter. Gets read messages from 2017 in which Hunter demanded money from a Chinese associate, calling Ray, quote, deeply uncurious and asking if he was, quote, protecting the Bidens. Ray remained quiet when asked about ongoing investigations into former President Donald Trump and Hunter Biden, but pushed back against the criticisms lauding the FBI's crime-fighting work against cartels and its protection of Americans. He also called claims of bias against conservatives, quote, somewhat insane, 
but Republicans still pressed him on information from a form that alleges bribery between the Bidens and a Ukrainian gas firm. The FBI didn't comply with an oversight subpoena to turn over the document, and Ray couldn't say if President Biden is under investigation. Leading Democrat Jerry Nadler, the Democrat from New York, said Republicans hijacked and politicized the hearing to, quote, protect Donald Trump from the consequences of his actions, accusing House Republicans of targeting the FBI for treating Donald Trump, quote, like any other citizen. Those were the facts, and as you may have guessed, we have some politically opposed narratives here. We'll start this spin with a Republican narrative from the post-millennial. Christopher Wray and the FBI are being exposed for their double standard of justice and their protection of President Biden and his corrupt family. Wray may have angrily denied the accusations of the FBI's weaponization, but all evidence clearly points to an uneven playing field in favor of Democrats. From the complete lack of due diligence into Hunter Biden's business dealings, to the targeting of conservative parents and pro-life activists, to the unfair treatment of January 6 protesters, it's clear the U.S. is a two-tier justice system. And that's going to be followed up with a Democratic narrative provided by the New Republic. The Republicans grilling Ray were merely grasping at straws, parroting conspiracy theories and attacking law enforcement, who they have long claimed to support. The GOP has turned so quickly in cultish defense of leader Donald Trump who has consistently surrounded himself with criminals, it appears that weaponization against Republicans is simply applying the same rules to them as everyone else. We also have an establishment critical narrative from NPR. America's security agencies have been a political weapon for a long time. We are now seeing the mask come off. The FBI has a sordid history of being entangled in politics and targeting individuals and groups. Countless whistleblowers have come out against the national security apparatus, and Americans on both sides of the aisle will hopefully awaken from the amnesia of this troubled history. Yeah, I agree with that establishment critical narrative and the fact FBI has become a little more political lately, but I think that's because a lot more politicians are becoming corrupt. If they are doing their job, then um, it's going to be messy. And it's going to get political because, like, you know, it's dealing with politicians. I agree. It's just a problem in the U.S. is that politics has gotten a little dirty and a little uh, one-sided. Right. And, and who, who else would clean up the, po- the, the political mess? Right. I mean, there's got to be some sort of law enforcement. Someone's got to turn Someone's their- got to take out the garbage, you know? Oh, 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 someone's got to take out the garbage. And it's garbage man Christopher Ray. Every raccoon's best friend. Zelensky falls short in a bid for NATO membership. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Sky News, and NATO. At NATO's annual summit in Lithuania on Tuesday, despite last-minute attempts from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, the alliance's 31 members released a final communique that neither secured Ukraine's invitation to NATO nor established a firm timetable or clear conditions for its eventual membership. The summit communique said that while Ukraine's future is in NATO, the alliance would only extend an invitation to Ukraine when Kyiv had completed certain democratic and security sector reforms. According to reports, the language reflected concerns from the U.S. and Germany that if Ukraine was permitted to join NATO while the war with Russia was ongoing, NATO, by definition, would be at war with the Russian Federation. At a speech later on Tuesday, Zelensky said that he still had faith in NATO, but that he would, quote, like this faith to become confidence, 
confidence in the decisions that we deserve. All of us, every soldier, every citizen, every mother, every child. Is that too much to ask? Nonetheless, despite the rebuff, during a joint press conference with Zelensky on Wednesday, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg announced a three-part package of measures that would bring Ukraine closer to the alliance. This includes the establishment of the NATO-Ukraine Council, a forum where NATO and Ukraine can hold crisis talks as equals, in addition to a multi-year program that fully transitions Ukraine's armed forces from Soviet-era weapons to NATO equivalents. Finally, NATO removed the requirement for Ukraine to submit a membership action plan. This will change Ukraine's membership path from a two-step process to a one-step process, Stoltenberg said. Addressing the press conference, Zelensky said it would have been ideal if there had been an invitation for Kyiv to join the alliance, but said that it was understandable that Ukraine cannot join NATO when at war. Thank you, Melissa. We're going to start off with a pro-establishment narrative provided by CNN. While NATO will do everything in its power to help Ukraine defend itself from Russian aggression, the alliance simply cannot invite Ukraine to be a member at this stage. Doing so would bring the United States and NATO into direct conflict with Russia. Ukraine needs to have a successful counteroffensive, secure a ceasefire, and then its entry into NATO can proceed. A pro-Russia narrative comes to us from TASS. The latest NATO summit in Lithuania continued to demonstrate the anti-Russian attitude of the U.S.-led Atlantic Alliance. Not only does NATO openly describe Russia as its primary threat, but continues to pile further military resources on Russia's borders. Then, NATO has the gall to continue blaming Russia for the outbreak of this conflict, a historical inaccuracy, to say the least. And we're going to wrap this story up with a nerd narrative from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They think there's a 50% chance that U.S. or NATO forces will conduct military operations in Ukraine or Ukraine's occupied regions by January 2024. China warns against NATO-Asia-Pacific expansion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Reuters, Independent, Global Times, CNN, and Al Jazeera. China's diplomatic mission in Brussels on Wednesday expressed concerns over any potential eastward expansion of NATO, vowing to resolutely oppose it to safeguard its national interests. China's state-run media also hit back at the alliance, suggesting that the wars and conflicts involving NATO members indicate that the bloc is a threat to global peace and stability. This comes as the Atlantic Alliance wrapped up its summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, a day after issuing a joint communique that criticized Beijing's ambitions and policies while stressing its openness to, quote, constructive engagement with the PRC. NATO accused Beijing and Moscow of colluding to challenge the so-called rules-based international order, prompting the Chinese foreign ministry to say that the PRC-Russia relationship is based on the principles of non-alignment, non-confrontation, and non-targeting. The two-day summit was also attended by Asia-Pacific leaders, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea, indicating that NATO fears that the Ukraine war may encourage what is characterized as autocratic nations to take offensive actions in the Pacific. The four Pacific countries were also invited to last year's summit in Madrid, Spain. The alliance earlier this year revealed plans to open a Tokyo liaison office, its first in Asia. 
However, Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida stressed in May that Japan has no plans to become a NATO member. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. We'll begin this round of spins with a pro-China narrative from the South China Morning Post. NATO's hypocrisy and blatant lying have reached a new level as the Western alliance completely misrepresented China's foreign policy positions. The rhetoric also ignored what NATO has done to antagonize China and Russia. While providing droves of arms and funds to Ukraine and recruiting Finland and Sweden, the alliance has the audacity to ridicule China's neutrality. China will respond to any eastward expansion that poses a threat to its sovereignty. And following up that, we have an anti-China narrative provided by The Conversation. China is ramping up its military prowess and cyber intelligence as it looks to assert dominance in the coming years. It is also very secretive about its military plans while cozying up with Russia despite its brutal invasion of Ukraine. Given the authoritarian nature of the Chinese regime and the threat it represents to the rules-based international order, NATO must do all it can to make allies in the Asia-Pacific region and dissuade China from engaging in acts of aggression. And we have another nerd narrative from the folks at Metaculus saying there's a 17% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war before 2035. Iranian President Raisi begins his Africa tour with visits to Kenya and Uganda. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, France 24, the Associated Press, and ABC News. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi kicked off a three-day visit to Africa on Wednesday, making his first stops in Kenya and Uganda to discuss trade with President William Ruto. Raisi is set to visit Zimbabwe in the first Iranian state visit to Africa in a decade. Describing the visit as a turning point, Raisi and Ruto signed five memoranda of understanding covering information technology, investment, fisheries, and other areas. While Kenya desires to increase agricultural exports to Iran beyond their primary export of tea, Iran plans to open a vehicle manufacturing facility in the port city of Mombasa. After departing from Kenya, Raisi met with Ugandan President Yauri Museveni, where he spoke against the West's LGBTQ stance. Uganda recently passed legislation prescribing the death penalty for aggravated homosexuality. Iran has struggled economically since the U.S. reinstated sanction on it in 2018, with Raisi touring several Latin American countries affected by U.S. sanctions in June. A cost-of-living crisis has gripped Kenya while Uganda and Zimbabwe remain under U.S. sanctions. Kenya is a strategic ally for the U.S. in East Africa, with First Lady Jill Biden visiting the country earlier this year. Uganda, with large uranium reserves, is a U.S. security ally that has also voiced support for Iran's nuclear program, a source of tension between Iran and the West. Thank you, Melissa. We've got a few spins attached to this story. We're going to start off with an establishment-critical narrative provided by Mare News. African countries are waking up to the neocolonial ways of the West, and it's inevitable that cooperation between Iran and Africa will increase in the light of onerous conditions they both face from Western imperialism. With shared cultural backgrounds and policy goals of non-alignment, African countries and Iran have much to share with one another through a deepening of relations. Here's a pro-establishment narrative from Iran International. Iran's adversarial relationship with the West has put it on the road to ruin, and Tehran's world tour of other struggling countries will do little to alleviate its economic hardship. 
Iran faces a widespread economic crisis of its own making, as the West cannot and should not dignify its oppressive regime. If Raisi wants to boost the Iranian economy, he should stop their nuclear program and end their antagonistic disposition toward the West in order to see the crippling sanctions lifted. There's also a nerd narrative on this story. There's a 3% chance that the U.S. will rejoin the Iran nuclear deal by 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Iowa Republicans pass a six-week abortion ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, USA Today, ABC News, Reuters, and The Washington Post. The Republican-majority Iowa legislature on Tuesday passed a bill banning most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, and Republican Governor Kim Reynolds issued a statement saying she would sign it on Friday. The bill, which would ban abortions after any cardiac activity is detected in an embryo with some exceptions, passed the House 56 to 34, then two hours later passed the Senate 32 to 17. The bill allows for exceptions in the case of medical emergencies and for rape and incest, as long as they are reported to law enforcement or a health agency within 45 and 145 days respectively. This law replaces a 2018 six-week abortion ban that was blocked by a deadlocked 3-3 Iowa Supreme Court, leaving abortion legal up to 20 weeks in the state. Reynolds called a special session of the legislature to consider this bill, which will add Iowa to a list of conservative-leaning states that have passed stringent abortion restrictions in the aftermath of the pivotal U.S. Supreme Court ruling last year. Thank you, Adam. And here are the narrative spins on this story. We'll begin with a Republican narrative from the Daily Wire. Iowans and their democratically elected legislatures want their state to protect the sanctity of life. With this bill, which was courageously passed in the face of disruptive protests and loud chanting from pro-abortion activists, Iowa has given the unborn the justice they deserve. And Republican narratives are typically followed up with a Democratic one. I've got one here that's provided by Democracy Now! This isn't about justice or the sanctity of life. It's about access to life-saving health care for women. Republicans are lying to Americans while denying women the right to do what they feel is right with their bodies. The GOP is opposing these unpopular bans against the will of the people. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This time it says there's a 5% chance elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before 2030. In our next story, the DOJ reports that Trump is not immune from the E. Jean Carroll suit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, USA Today, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. On Tuesday, the U.S. Department of Justice reversed its previous decision that former President Donald Trump was immune from E. Jean Carroll's $10 million defamation lawsuit. The DOJ's decision letter moves forward a second defamation suit by Carroll, who in May won a $5 million judgment against Trump for sexual abuse and defamation in a separate case. The DOJ wrote a letter to Trump and Carroll's lawyers, stating that it no longer believes Trump was working within the scope of the presidency in June 2019 when he denied knowing or assaulting Carroll in the 1990s. The DOJ cited the May verdict, an October deposition of Trump, and Carroll's claims that Trump made more defamatory comments in May as part of its reasoning for reversing its immunity decision. 
The department stated there was no longer a sufficient basis to justify that Trump's comments were motivated by a desire to serve as president. Following the DOJ's decision, Carroll's suit is scheduled to go to trial in January 2024. Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, praised the decision and reaffirmed Carroll's stance that Trump's comments as president were born out of a personal animus, ill will, and spite. I had a personal animus when I was younger, but he died. (laughs) Oh, I'm so sorry. I I laughed at your pain. You know, it happens. (laughs) I got another animus after that. Oh, good. Sorry, my my parents replaced him. Oh, good. Yeah, it's always sad to lose an animus. Thank you, Melissa. We've got a pro-Trump narrative spin to begin with, provided by Washington Examiner. The DOJ is continuing its political witch hunt against Trump to derail the favorite for the GOP presidential nomination in his quest to return to the White House. However, truth is on Trump's side, as his countersuit against Carroll for her own defamation of the former president will reveal. Trump will ultimately defeat this scam and others like it. Politico brings us a Democratic narrative. At every turn, Trump is accused of doing something illegal, defending himself under the presumption that because he was the president, he was immune from the law. However, just like his prior claims that he couldn't be held liable for actions he took while in office, such an argument has rightly been rejected, and Carol's case will finally move to trial so she can obtain justice. And the nerds of Bataculus have an opinion. They think there's a 28% chance that a U.S. court will rule that Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th, 2025. Oh, man, talk about getting political. I think that would probably drive the the MAGA crowd batty. Yeah, he sure is stacking them up in court. My goodness, isn't he, though? It's like, oh, ask my assistant what what we're in court for today. I I wanted just to start defending himself. I think that'd be great. That would be very entertaining. Oh, my gosh. I would, like, bring back court TV just for that. Yeah, and put Judge Judy in the seat? Oh, my goodness, Dave. But I think Judge Judy supports Trump, though. That's the problem. Oh, we need someone unbiased, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we need Judge Judge Joe Brown. Remember him? Oh, yeah, that's right. Judge Joe Brown. No nonsense, Joe Brown. That's right. Canada probes Nike over forced Uyghur labor claims. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC, Al Jazeera, Government of Canada, and DW. On Tuesday, Canada's corporate ethics watchdog launched separate investigations into allegations that sporting goods company Nike Canada and the mining firm Dynasty Gold used and benefited from forced Uyghur labor in China. The Canadian Ombudsperson for Responsible Enterprises probe is based on complaints filed last year by a coalition of 28 civil society organizations about the overseas operations of 13 Canadian companies. While Nike Canada is suspected of having supply relationships with Chinese companies allegedly connected to Uyghur forced labor, Dynasty Gold is alleged to have benefited from it at a mine in the PRC in which it holds a majority interest. It's also alleged that Nike Canada has not taken, quote, any concrete steps to ensure beyond a reasonable doubt that forced labor is not implicated in their supply chain. However, Nike Canada maintains that it no longer has any ties with the companies accused of using forced Uyghur labor, and Dynasty Gold asserts that the allegations arose after it left the region. The PRC has been repeatedly accused of detaining millions of Uyghurs and forcing the Muslim minority group to attend re-education detention camps in the northwestern region of Xinjiang, 
Beijing, however, denies the allegations. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. And these spins will begin with a pro-establishment narrative from Reuters. The federal government has taken steps to eradicate forced labor from the country's supply chains, including enacting modern slavery laws and banning imports produced by forced labor, which is why allegations of using forced Uyghur labor in Canadian firms' supply chains and operations in China are particularly concerning and must be fully investigated. Canada is committed to respecting human rights in every market. And Breach Media has provided us with an establishment critical narrative. While there's evidence that the treatment of Uyghurs in China amounts to international crimes, particularly crimes against humanity, Canada has become a dumping ground for forced Uyghur labor products. With toothless laws, Ottawa's inaction, and a watchdog with no legal powers to prosecute even if companies are found guilty, businesses will continue to reap the benefits of supply chain complexities and escape punishment. And the nerds are at it once again from the Metaculous community. This one says there's a 10% chance that the UN will open an investigation or otherwise intervene on the issue of the Xinjiang internment camps before 2024. I heard they're using Uyghurs to make Chinese finger traps. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, well, those are making a hot comeback, right? Chinese yeah, finger they are. Traps. They are. They are. In fact, I think the police have decided to uh, to use it to be a little more softer you know, as opposed to the handcuffs, because there have been complaints about them being too oh, rough. Oh, that's good, too. You know, two birds with one stone. You just put you in this finger thing, and then yeah, the, you'll behave, for sure. The only problem is now, now the cops are getting busted for using slave labor. Oh, so yeah. You just can't win, you know? They're trying... You know... The cops are trying to be good. Baby steps. Baby steps. Baby steps. One step at a time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bank of America is fined $250 million over junk fees. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, NBC, The Washington Post, Daily Mail, Forbes, and Fox News. Bank of America, or BOA, agreed Tuesday to pay $250 million in fines for allegedly imposing junk fees, double-charging customers, withholding promised perks for setting up credit card accounts, and opening accounts without customers' permission. BOA, which serves 68 million people and small businesses with $2.4 trillion in consolidated assets and $1.9 trillion in domestic deposits, will pay more than $100 million to customers, $90 million to the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and $60 million to the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. According to the CFPB, Bank of America made substantial additional revenue for years by repeatedly charging customers $35 overdraft fees for the same transaction, totaling tens of millions of dollars, between just extra fees between March 2020 and November 2021. BOA is also accused of having illegally withheld credit card bonuses, like cash rewards, from tens of thousands of customers, as well as having illegally used or obtained customers' credit reports without their permission to secretly enroll them into credit card accounts, leading to more unjustified fees and damaged credit scores. Previously, BOA was ordered to pay $727 almost 10 years ago for conducting illegal credit card practices, but the bank has been conducting its latest credit card enrollment scheme in the decades since. Meanwhile, a BOA spokesperson said the bank voluntarily reduced overdraft fees and eliminated all non-sufficient fund fees in the first half of 2022, which resulted in revenue from these fees having dropped more than 90%. Thanks, Melissa. We're going to start off with a narrative A provided by BBC. 
Junk fees have been harming customers for years, as companies consistently fraudulently lure customers in with low fees before imposing surprise, predatory, and even outright illegal fees. Not only is this unethical, but it also locks average Americans, particularly poor people, into paying more than they can afford. The government must continue its crusade against this deceptive practice. Here's narrative B from fee.org. So-called junk fees aren't junk at all. Rather, they're typical business transactions that consumers have been aware of for a long time. They can be a nuisance, but they're not hidden, and a true free market economy would drive them out of the process. If the government wants to look out for consumers, it can start by getting rid of hidden taxes on goods and services. But also notice how they ignored the like uh, the bank starting up credit cards for you yeah, without yeah. your knowledge. No, that's that's... Well, that's common practice, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a nuisance, but, you know, it's a part of life. Yeah, and you get a new credit card. Right. You, know, you may not know about it, but you got a new credit card open. And you're just going to get a, after a year, you'll get a buildup of fees that you hadn't paid. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Right. It, it improves your credit. Build. You got to build your credit somewhere, right? You got to start That's it. right. And the bank's just trying to help you out. Right. Oh, they're so nice. This sarcastic narrative brought to you by Adam and Melissa. <laughs> And in our final story today, Elon Musk is launching a brand new AI company called XAI. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Wall Street Journal, The Hill, New York Post, and Verge. Elon Musk announced Wednesday the launch of his new artificial intelligence company called XAI. The company, whose members include alumni of DeepMind, OpenAI, Google Research, Microsoft Research, Twitter, and Tesla, says its aim is to understand the true nature of the universe. This comes after Musk said in May there should be a significant third horse in the race here, referencing the fact that the only two major players in the field are Microsoft and Google. He was also previously among several scientists and experts calling for a six-month pause on advanced AI development to provide time for the industry to implement safety measures. According to the company's website, people will be able to listen to the XAI team during a discussion with U.S. Reps Ro Khanna, the Democrat from California, and Mike Gallagher, the Republican from Wisconsin, on Twitter spaces on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Daily Time. The website also states that XAI's engineers have worked on projects including AlphaStar, GPT-3.5, and GPT-4, with director of the Center for AI Safety Dan Hendricks slated to be a company advisor. Musk registered XAI Corp. in Nevada in March, with himself as the director and Jared Burchell, the managing director of Musk's family office, as the secretary. It was also reported in April that the billionaire had acquired thousands of high-powered GPU processors from NVIDIA for the venture. This isn't Musk's first AI rodeo having co-founded OpenAI in 2015 before leaving due to a conflict of interest with Tesla. He has also previously criticized OpenAI and floated the idea of creating something called TruthGPT. Okay, those were the facts on our final story, and we'll begin this round of spins with Narrative A from the New York Times. Elon Musk's relationship with AI is complicated, and his true motives are unknown. On the one hand, he warns about the dangers of the technology, while on the other, he works to incorporate it into Twitter and even build his own company to rival ChatGPT, 
Another worry is Musk's goal of open sourcing AI software, a move that experts say could lead to the technology falling into the wrong hands. The Wall Street Journal has a narrative B on this story. Musk has called for slowing the development of AI and researching its potential harm to society. But unfortunately, those leading the industry have chosen not to heed his warnings. Having seen what AI can be used for when it's in the wrong hands, such as ChatGPT dishing out biased and politically correct answers, he wants to create a program that pursues the truth above all else. Building an unbiased system seems like a far more positive pursuit than what we currently have. And the nerds have the final say today from the Metaculous community. This one says there's a 32% chance that Elon Musk-funded AI Lab will release a large language model before 2024. I think if he's smart, he's going to build an AI program that can fight the other AI programs like ChatGPT and uh, whatever Okay, Microsoft's. so the, you're talking down the line. Uh, when there's a the ultimate battle bot, uh, who's gonna who's gonna win? Exactly, the ultimate, exactly, the ultimate AI battle bot. It needs to be like Wally or something. Yeah, like. it looks unassuming, but really, is a powerhouse. Maybe like a like a dog type thing, like a, yeah. like a man's best yeah. friend type a thing, or a, cutie. a wolf, dog X, a, a wolf. There you go, dog X. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, July 13th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same story. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. <laughs>